0: weeks ago, we began our journey uh, through the book of Matthew, and it's a, it's a long book. There's 28 chapters, and uh, we've had two sermons on chapter 1. And I'd actually like to pause uh, today and take a look at verse 21 of chapter 1. And so we're going to look at just one verse today, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. That can be found on page 1,497 of the Pew Bibles, and I, I think it'll become clear as we go why this is such an important uh, verse to pause and to meditate on um, before we launch into the rest of the book of Matthew. Again, chapter 1, verse 21, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, The angel is speaking to Joseph in his dream and says, she, Mary, will give birth to a son, And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Um, So the angel says to Mary that uh, Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. And so before we move on, like I said, I want to stop here and consider this. um, Because this could mean a lot of different things. All we have to do is supply our own definition for the word sin and supply our own definition for the word saves. And all of a sudden, this can mean whatever we would like it to mean. So for example, in our culture today, the greatest sin imaginable is me simply not being my true authentic self. So if I live my life according to the expectations of others, under the oppression of family and tradition and religion, never being able to express who I really am inside, there is nothing worse than that. That is the greatest sin I can commit against myself and against the world. And so if that is what sin is, if that is what sin is, then salvation is simply gaining the courage. To be and express who I believe I really am. Is that what the angel means? Is that what God means? When we're told that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Others believe the greatest sin in the world is social and political. They would say that every human being is good. And that the only reason that people do bad things is because they're formed and shaped by this sinful world. And so in that scenario, salvation, right, if that's sin, then salvation is social and political. We just need to find the right economic conditions, the right social conditions, so that everybody can flourish. Is that what it means to be saved from our sin? Is Jesus primarily a social and political savior? Others would say that sin is disobeying the law of God. Regardless of who your, your God is, whether it's the God of the Bible or Allah or whatever God that, that you decide that you ought to give your allegiance to. They would say that you have to obey this God's laws and salvation then is submitting to the laws of this God that you believe in so that you can receive the reward for having obeyed. Is that what Matthew means by sin and salvation? You see, we all believe in the concept of sin and salvation. We might not call it that, but basically sin is our answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? And salvation is our answer to the question, what must be done to make that right? And every human being knows this intuitively. In fact, the example I will give is the advertisement industry. It is it is built on the fact that all of us know that there's something wrong and that something needs to be done about it. Every time we turn on the T V or listen to the radio, we're told that we just need more rest, and you should go on this vacation. You just need to have this wonderful experience and, and you will feel complete you need to eat the right food, drink the right drink, have the right experience, and all will be well with the world. And so we need to know as Christians, when the Bible talks about sin and salvation, what is being spoken about? Because Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 tells us exactly why Jesus came to this earth. He came to save his people from their sins. This is the theme verse of the entire book of Matthew. This is the thesis statement. It's what the rest of this book is about. So here's our outline for this morning. First, we're going to look at the nature of sin. And then we're going to look at the consequence of sin. And then finally, we're going to discuss salvation from sin. So much has been written over the years about the nature of sin. But essentially, we can boil it down to two things. The nature of sin consists of guilt and corruption. Um, we're guilty because we have broken God's law in our thoughts. We've broken God's law in our words, and our actions. Uh, and we're corrupt because we're the kind of people who break God's law. Right? We sin because we're sinners. James tells us there is only one lawgiver and judge. The Apostle John, John defines sin as Lawlessness which means if God is the lawgiver and judge and sin is lawlessness, then God's law is the law that we are guilty of breaking when we sin and God is the one we are accountable to. Paul says each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So just like when we cross the border into another country, all of a sudden it's that country's laws and that country's judges that we have to be concerned about. So it is with God, except he is the universal lawgiver he's the universal judge. He is the one to whom we all must give an account. So if God is the lawgiver and judge, if sin is breaking his law, and if each one of us are accountable to him, the question is, how does somebody know if they are guilty of breaking God's law? There's essentially two ways. One is our conscience. Um, Paul, in Romans, speaking about non-believers, says that the requirements of the law are written on our hearts. And this this explains why every culture and every time and every place agrees on a certain core set of moral absolutes. Murder is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Because God has written his law on our heart, And at some point, we all know intuitively that we have sinned against God. Now, conscience is not foolproof. Um, Sometimes we feel guilty about things we should not feel guilty about. Somebody who's been abused can feel guilty uh, and feel like they were responsible. That is false guilt. They ought not to feel guilty about those things. Some who grow up in a real legalistic environment uh, can take on laws that are extra-biblical, that God never said thou shalt not about, and yet they can carry with them their entire lives feelings of you know, guilt because they're not giving themselves to certain practices or they're disappointing their family or their community. Yet the opposite is also true. We, can, we cannot feel guilty about things that we ought to feel guilty about. We steal and tell ourselves, oh, it's fine because that person's really wealthy and I needed it, I deserved it. It's easy to give ourselves to business practices that are questionable because there's a lot of pressure on us. And and it's what we have to do to survive and to keep our employees and to uh, provide for our families. And the Christian sexual ethic is now considered backwards and repressive And many people even inside the church have reinterpreted God's law and no longer feel guilty about crossing those boundaries either. So our conscience is not a perfect guide, which means we need a better and more reliable way of knowing if we have broken God's law. And the only way to know is to know God's word inside and out. Since we are prone to feel guilty about things we should not feel guilty about, and we are also prone uh, to not feel guilty about things that we should feel guilty about, we must have our mind and heart shaped by God's word. Now, here's how high the standard is, though, of God's word. If we go all the way back to the 10th commandment, this is what we read. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So to covet means to desire or treasure something, which is actually okay, except when it belongs to somebody else and you do not have a right to it, like somebody's wife, somebody's car, somebody's house, right? When our, when our hearts begin to cherish those things, we are coveting. But what I really want to point out with this command is that it shows us that God's law and our accountability to him extends all the way to the desires of our heart. As soon as our heart flutters after something, That God in his goodness and his grace has said we ought not to, to have. We are guilty. So that's how easy it is to break God's law. And then Jesus tells us how hard it is to keep God's law. Later in Matthew he says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus takes the entire law of God and summarizes it in these two commandments. And I don't know about you, but the amount of time I spend thinking about myself and my needs, needs, my wants, my desires, my comfort is shocking. shocking. It's shocking. What Jesus is saying here is to to truly obey God's law would be to consider other people and their needs and their pain and their comfort as much as we think about our own. And on top of that, (laughs) to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind to think about him to love him and to yearn for him with every fiber of your being every moment of the day so sin is doing what God forbids which includes even the sinful desires of our heart and sin is also not doing what God commands which is to love him with our whole heart and to love our neighbor as much as we already love ourselves And we are guilty of sin, whether we feel like it or not. If we have broken God's law in thought, word, or action, and the only way to know for sure with our guilty consciences is to know God's word inside and out. But we're not just guilty. The Bible says we're also corrupt. We are the kind of people who sin. When Adam and Eve first sinned, what happened was They became something fundamentally different than what they were. Their their nature changed. And so when they produced offspring, they produced people with that new nature. The Haderberg Catechism says that apart from Christ, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. This is the clear teaching of scripture. David in Psalm 51 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Paul says in Ephesians that we are by nature deserving of wrath. And in Romans 8, Paul says, The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So the human problem is much more severe than the fact that we have broken God's law and thought, word, and action or that we even want to break his law. The problem is that we are the kind of creatures who naturally rebel against God by nature. We're not a rose bush that needs to be pruned. We are a weed that deserves to be pulled out. So what do guilty and corrupt sinners deserve? The consequence of sin. So in the Garden of Eden, God warned Adam and Eve He says, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So the first law, the only law that they were given, contained within it, the consequence of sin. James puts it this way, he says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire, right, their corruption, and enticed. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Finally, Paul simply says, for the wages of sin is death. So death is wages. Just like when we go to work, we punch the clock, we we earn our salary. Every time we sin in thought, word, and deed, every time we fail to love others and love God with our whole heart, we are earning for ourselves death. So what is death? Well, death actually starts when we sin. And we all know this is true. So if I lied to you, or I stole something from you, I would have have introduced death into our relationship. Something rotten. Something would smell. Our friendship would be tainted. All of a sudden, you can't trust me. And not only am I no longer trustworthy, I'm actually a threat. This is why adultery is so evil. Because marriage is the relationship where we pour the greatest amount of trust We roll over our whole lives onto another person. And when that person lets us down, it destroys so much. It pollutes the relationship with fear and hurt and anger. It it pours something toxic into it. This is why God in the Old Testament refers to any sin as adultery. Because we know that adultery profoundly shatters relationships, and God wants us to know that any and all sin profoundly shatters our relationship with him every bit as much as a marriage is ruined by adultery. So sin poisons our own hearts. It poisons the life of the community. If lying and stealing and cheating becomes so normal, we find ourselves living in an environment where we can't trust anyone, all of a sudden that dark, dystopian, post-apocalyptic movie that we've all seen becomes reality and we begin to destroy each other. So sin creates darkness and deceit and destruction. And as bad as all that is, that's not the worst consequence of sin. The worst consequence of sin is the judgment of God. So the book of Revelation um, talks about this thing called the mark of the beast. Maybe you've heard about it. Well, what the mark of the beast really is, is it's, it's a metaphor explaining what happens when a heart becomes so hard that it no longer can repent of its sins? And this is what, this is what the book of Revelation says. It says, "'A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, "'If anyone worships the beast in its image and received its mark on their forehead or on their hand, "'they too will drink the wine of God's fury, "'which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. "'They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb.'" And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. You see, the death we earn with our sin is more than just the consequences of our sin that we unleash in this life. It's an eternal death. It's the kind of death that never ends. It includes drinking in the cup of God's wrath at full strength and being tormented with burning sulfur and the presence, in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And we have reduced it to this benign idea that we are no longer, you know, that I'm separated from God and that I... I'd rather just go to the fun place where my friends are than wear a robe and play a harp. That's what our culture has done. But the reality of where sin leads is terrifying. And I will confess that I was very nervous writing this sermon because I thought, who, who wants to hear this? Because this is a really difficult teaching. It's actually so difficult that my natural inclination is to reject it. To say no. How could a God of love and compassion and mercy and kindness pour wrath out on sinners forever? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But this is the clear teaching of the scriptures. And God's word is more true than what I think or what I feel. But, if this is what sinners deserve, if this is the most serious consequence of sin, then what Jesus has done for us is more wonderful than we could ever, ever imagine. Listen, but he who was pierced for our transgression. He who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Which means when our hearts struggle with this teaching, the reason this seems so odd and disproportionate to us is because we don't understand the sinfulness of sin. And ironically, the more we understand the sinfulness of sin, the more we understand the love of God. That he would be willing to take this in our place. See, when we look at a garden and we see a weed, we don't consider any other option but pulling it out. And yet, God looked at us and he became one of us. And he suffered in our place and he did that to transform us into a flower. Let me give you a couple other examples. So, the majority of Americans, and I listened to this on a podcast the other day, so I believe it's true because he was quoting an article, but just so you know. He said the majority of Americans actually do not approve of the death penalty, if pulled. However, if you mention the uh, Boston bomber, or you mention Dylan Roof, who was the young man who shot up the African Americans in um, that church in South Carolina, if you mention those two people, all of a sudden the majority of Americans actually do approve of the death penalty. Which is fascinating. It's fascinating. Because what that actually means is the majority of Americans always approved of the death penalty. What, what they didn't like was that it couldn't be administered fairly. But as soon as somebody whose crime is so heinous that it, that it, that it you know blows our mind... Um, and their guilt is so obvious that there's no doubt that they're the ones who did it, as soon as that person emerges, everyone says, sure, I cannot think of a more... uh, um, There's got to be something. Which means our perception of justice depends on our ability to understand how evil something actually is and how guilty someone actually is of committing that evil. Let me say that again. Our perception of justice depends on our ability to understand how evil something actually is and how guilty someone actually is of committing that evil. And the scripture says that our hearts are deceitful above all else. So the biblical teaching then about the white-hot, unrelenting wrath of God against sin is there to help us grasp how evil every sin is and to see how holy God actually is and how guilty we actually are. It's there to help us see that the sinful corruption of our nature is worse than we ever dreamed, that when we tell ourselves we're not that bad, that sin doesn't deserve eternal punishment, that we're actually deceiving ourselves. But it's also there to show us that God's love for us is greater than we ever dreamed, that he would be willing to bear his own wrath in our place. <laughs> There's a scene from Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah, who's a prophet of God, a holy man, He gets this vision of God up on his throne and his glory and in his majesty and his splendor and his beauty and his holiness. And when he sees God up there, his response is, "'Woe to me,' I cried. "'I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. "'I live among a people of unclean lips, "'and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty.'" Friends, if we could, if we could see this same vision of God and his beauty and his holiness, we would have the same experience, right? It's like when you, uh, when you think you're a pretty good baseball player, and then you meet somebody who's a way better baseball player. All of a sudden, phew, the distance between you and them, you feel crushed by it, right? When we think we're a good person and we see God, phew, Isaiah was crushed by the distance. He says, I am ruined. That word means, I was destro- I was destroyed. So that the picture is of Isaiah there and he, and he feels like he's just being ripped apart at the seams because God's holiness. One translation says, I am undone. Undone. Another example, imagine a wedding dress. So imagine this young woman, her uh, fiancé asks her to, or they become fiancé, and right? He asked her to marry him she's so excited. This has been the dream of her life. She gets to go shopping with her mom for the wedding dress, just like her older sister got to do. She's just in loving every minute of it. They go shopping to all the different stores. They find the one, you know, the, the dress that just takes her beauty and makes it even more beautiful. And so she's standing there with her mom and the lady who works at the store who's brought out 50 dresses and is finally like oh you like this one good and like the stars align you hear the music angels are singing they're like yes so they buy the dress they get it fitted just for her seven months later the wedding day has come her and her future husband soon to be have agreed not to see each other before the wedding day And she's standing there behind the doors of the sanctuary. All of her bridesmaids go forward. All of a sudden, the music plays. She's about to go. She's going to lock eyes with him, walking down the aisle. And she looks down and there's a smudge on her dress. All of a sudden, this moment that was supposed to be beautiful, majestic, is ruined. It's ruined. She's walking down the aisle, tears streaming down her face. Everyone thinks because she loves the guy, but no, it's because she is horrified that there's a smudge on her wedding dress. I mean, this poor girl, right? This is a moment she's looked forward to her whole life, dreamed about, it. and here it is just shattered. And if one smudge on a wedding dress can just whoo, flip something like that, how much can one sin separate us from a holy, holy, holy God? So, how can sinners like us be saved from our sin and the consequences of it? Here's the, here's the situation we have to look at the diagnosis before we can love the cure. We have to know the reality of what we are and what we deserve if we're going to grasp what Christ has done for us. Now, I've had this experience. I was a youth pastor for six years. You ask young people, particularly young people who grew up in the church, who've maybe even gone to a Christian school, what's the gospel? And they will look at you like, I think I'm supposed to know this. And then, if anything does squirt out, usually what squirts out is that ah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, which is true, thousand percent true. But that's just a part of it. What Christ accomplished on the cross was absolutely necessary to save His people from their sins. But God becoming a human was absolutely necessary so that Jesus could save his people from their sins. That's why the story of God coming to the womb of a virgin is so profound. Jesus had to be God because only God could come into this sin-soaked world and live a perfect life. And then only God could bear the weight of what we deserve. He also had to be perfect because if he sinned, then he would have to deal with his own sins with God. So he had to be God to be morally perfect to save us. And he had to be God to be powerful enough to save us. But he also had to be a human because only a human can represent humans to save humans. It was a human that got us into this mess and a human needed to get us out. So Jesus, as a human, perfectly obeyed the whole law of God. He loved God with his whole heart, his whole soul, his whole mind and whole strength. He loved his neighbor as himself, perfectly. He never coveted anything. He was filled with thankfulness and generosity. So Jesus didn't just die on the cross for our sins. He spent nine months in the womb of a virgin to save us from our sins. He obeyed his parents every day as a child to save us from our sins. He lived a life as a man acquainted with sorrow and grief to save us from our sins. The writer of the Hebrew says, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So the eternal son of God was always infinitely perfect, eternally, right? Forever begotten of the father. But as a human, he came and he had to be made perfect through suffering and obedience. Why? Why? Because we have two problems. We're guilty and we're corrupt. So he paid the penalty that we deserved on the cross, suffering in our place for our sin. But he lived a perfect life so he could give us his perfection. So he could cleanse us with the flow of his blood, right? So it's like a carpet stain, right? If you, if you clean the top of it, it comes back up, right? You can't just take care of the guilt. You gotta take care of the corruption underneath as well. And so Jesus lived a perfect life, fully obeying God in every single way so that he could give that to us. See, it's not that we just don't need, we don't just need to, it's not as if we never sinned. It also has to be as if we perfectly obeyed. And so Jesus accomplished both of those things in our place. Peter tells us that when he suffered, he made no threat. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so in the crucible of the cross and the garden when, when all of our faith would have broken hours before, Jesus held on to faith. He trusted that God was good, even when everything that he felt was telling him that, that God is not good and that God has abandoned him. He entrusted himself. So that level of faithfulness is what God sees when he looks on a believer in Jesus Christ. So in order to save us, it took way more than paying the penalty of our sins on the cross. He had to earn for us a perfect righteousness. On the cross, he takes our guilt on his shoulders, then he gives us perfection to cleanse us of our corruption. He absorbed the toxic consequences that we've polluted this world with by our sin. He suffered the righteous judgment of God in our place, and he gives us God's righteousness as our own. Paul says, God made him sin who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But that's that's not all. He also frees us to be what we were created to be. And so when we see what God has done for us and God opens our eyes and gives us faith to receive all that Christ has done, all of a sudden we're free. In that moment we're freed from slavery to sin and Satan We're freed from the power of fear and death. At that moment, we're given a new heart. Right? He takes the heart of stone out, gives us a heart of flesh. He writes his law on our mind and our heart. So now we long to obey his commands. We hate our sin as defined by his word, not our culture. Because we know that all sin does is pour poison into this world and wrecks everything we hate it and we begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not just the righteousness that we're given in Christ, but actual rightness, righteousness, so we too can love God and love our neighbor. This is what Paul means when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here, and then Jesus rose again, <clears throat> excuse me, for our justification, To to prove that he had the power to save. Now he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God and he's praying for us every moment of every day. And if this Jesus is for us, who can be against us? And now, with Christ as our brother and God as our father, we're adopted into his family and we belong to him. Friends, all of our sin is gone and we stand we stand in perfect righteousness before the God of the universe. So, so what that means is, whatever sin we're struggling with, God has given us the power to overcome it. Never perfectly in this life, but as we lean in to the reality of the church and of confession and repentance, not as a way of earning anything, because all that's a gift in Christ, but as a grateful response To the wonder and the beauty that Jesus came to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and uh, we're so grateful for this teaching. As hard as it is to look at, it also causes us to bask in wonder of what Christ has done for us. When we see the sinfulness of sin, Father, our first response is to want to reject it because the condemnation and the weight of it is more than we can bear. And yet all we need to do is look to Christ and behold the wondrous mystery of his love for us and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, all for us. The good news of everything that he's came to do. And then he unites us into the church, into his people, that we might go out and proclaim this message to a lost and dying world. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.